Good morning. It is good to be back, to be worshiping with you and among you this morning. God, in His grace, gave me some very good, restful time away. Uh, but it is good to be back. It's uh, stepping back into this series in Hebrews. We are coming quickly to the end of it. There are a number of weeks left here, but uh, we are at the end of chapter 12 this morning, speaking of the unshakable kingdom. We're in Hebrews chapter 12, the last five verses or so, 25 until the end. Hear then the word of God. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the, shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered to you this morning. We have come to you to sit at your feet, to offer you our worship, to offer you our hearts and our lives, ourselves. Father, we long for you to work among us, to work in us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to pour forth grace and power that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so we ask that you would work this morning, even in the hearing of your word. That we may be shaken in the moment. That we may stand in that unshakable kingdom forever. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 26, it says, His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised that yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 27 goes on to tell us that this indicates the removal of all things that have been made. Right? He's talking about nothing less than the end of the world as we know it. The shaking and the removal of all things. The end of all things as we know them. What we see here as we see everywhere in the scripture is that the Christian and biblical world view, the view of history is linear. Linear in the sense that it's going somewhere. It's not cycling in some meaningless You know, repetition, the scripture is very clear. We're moving, we're marching definitively toward a climax. That God, that history is nothing less than than God working out his plans and his purposes in the course of the world as all of it moves toward a conclusion that he has planned and designed. The same voice, it says, that said at the beginning in Genesis 1, if you jump to the beginning, the same voice that said, let there be, and everything was created, all that is around us, you and I. That same voice that spoke then, it says here that he will speak again. And this time all of creation will be shaken. And this time all things will be removed, except for those few things that are unshakable. 
The Scripture speaks of this day throughout Scripture. The Old Testament gives many prophetic pictures of the day, but the New Testament, we'll just go to, to Jesus in Revelation, uh, as, as understanding this day that he's talking about. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus says, in those days, after the tribulation, the sun is going to be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. He'll be coming with power and with glory. He'll send out His angels to gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of the heaven. The world as we know it will end. Revelation chapter 6, it says a similar thing. It says the stars in the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a great gale, there is this shaking. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. Calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us. From the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, from the great day of their wrath that has come, who can stand? This text is about who can stand. The day is coming. It's been proclaimed and declared, clearly stated, so that the world knows this day is coming. And there are those who will hide under the rocks and who will not stand. And those who will stand on that day, all of Scripture declares to all who will not refuse to listen that this day is coming. Right? That's where the text starts. See that you don't refuse Him who is speaking. To those who will not refuse to listen, they will hear and they will know that this day is coming. It is the conclusion of all of history. Of everything that is going on of the very purpose of our lives and our existence and for the world it was made. How does one prepare for such a day? Well, it declares that as well, as you and I know as well, by repenting of our rebellion. To repent of our rebellion against this Creator who said, let there be and who will then shake all things. To, to cease our rebellion against Him, to repent of our sin, to return in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, His King of this unshakable kingdom about which we're talking. See, the world lives like there is no God. We can see it all around us. They live like God will never shake His world. They don't, they're unaware of the shaking that's coming. They don't see it. They don't understand it. They refuse to hear. What the text warns us, don't refuse to hear Him. It is being proclaimed. We preach it. The Scripture has proclaimed it for thousands of years. The day is coming. The world lives like they will never be held accountable. Their rebellion against the truth. We can see it just so clearly in our moment. It's true all along, but they call evil good. Things that the Scripture clearly proclaims, they call them good. And the things that you and I, and, and according to the Scripture, would say are good and right, they say they're evil. They call darkness light, and the light, darkness. 
Matthew 24, Jesus says this in verse 38 and 9, in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving, on, and giving in marriage until the day, the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and it swept them all away. And he says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The world carries on as if there will be no flood, there will be no shaking, there will be no accountability. But God is calling His people, He's calling us to live in light of that day when God is going to rock His world, when He's going to remove all things. All of life is to be lived in the light of that day. We are not unaware. We know. We understand the purpose and the meaning and the direction of all of history. We know and we understand what God is doing. The kingdom that he is building. Jesus is building his kingdom against the very gates of hell. And the world and hell will not stand against it. We know where it's going and we know what's happening. And so he says that we as his people are to live in light of that day. Every day is to be lived in light of that day. Jesus tells several parables calling his people to readiness. Remember, they're a parable about having oil in your lamp, about those who didn't, you know, who fell asleep and who who didn't renew the oil in their lamp and their lights went out, right? They fell asleep at the wheel. They become unaware. They stopped paying attention. They weren't alert. They weren't, and, and they missed the moment. And he tells these parables about making sure that we have oil in our lamp, this image of being awake and looking and waiting and knowing for the bridegroom is coming and we need to be prepared. So much in Scripture calls us to this readiness. And so the question for many of us this morning, the question even as I was writing it this week, is this, in what ways and how many ways have I joined, have you joined in the world's self-absorption? where it's full of itself and living for itself and building its own kingdom and going about its business as if there will not be a shaking, as if there will not be a day when the Lord returns in power and glory and in judgment. Are we awake? Are you and I as his people with the scripture, again, Jesus spent so much time calling us to be about the Father's business. Right When the master returns, have you been about the master's business? What are you doing? The day is coming. The master is returning to make an account of his house. Are we about the father's business? All things, he tells us, will be shaken and removed. But he says it in the context, as we move to The second point there, which is that we have an unshakable kingdom. Really, as we read the text, the the truth is for you and I, as this is written to the church, this is written to encourage us. It's written to, to give us strength and courage and to renew our hope and to remind us of the truth of the gospel and the good things that he has given to us. That those who are in Christ by faith And it tells us here as it does everywhere else. In Christ, by faith, you have nothing to fear on that day. 
No fear. None. We see it in verses 27 and 28 again after he speaks about the shaking of all things. In 27 he says it, it yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That the things that have been made in order that, so that, the purpose of God is not the shaking. It's the removal of all things that are shakable that are sinking sand, that are not eternal, that are not of him. So that, verse 27, so that, in order that, the things that cannot be shaken will remain. It will all be removed, but there will be a few things left. That's why in 28 he says, therefore let us be grateful as his people. We live in gratitude, not in fear, but in gratitude. Grateful. Why? He says, because we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It will not be shaken on that day. It stands firm in the midst of it. It is God's kingdom. It is His kingdom. When we flee this kingdom through faith in Christ and enter into His kingdom and become part of it, that kingdom will not be shaken. When everything else is shaken and removed, that kingdom will stand and remain into eternity. And it is in that kingdom that eternal life that He talks about exists in Christ, with Christ, in His kingdom, by His grace and power. That is where the church is going is heading, is moving. John 5, Jesus says in verse 24, Truly, truly, hear me, hear me. Do not refuse my word. I say this to you. Whoever hears my word, which is the opposite of verse 25 here, see that you do not refuse him who's speaking, right? Jesus says, truly, whoever hears my word, who does not refuse my word, and believes in him who sent me, has eternal life. He has it right now. And he says it in these stark terms. He says, he does not come into judgment. That's what I said, no fear. The one who has faith in Christ, who does not refuse the word, but believes in him, Right, does not come into judgment. There is no judgment. Why? He has already passed from death to life. That judgment has already fallen. That judgment has already happened. We have passed in Christ by faith. We have passed from death into life. Into that eternal life that is in the kingdom, the unshakable kingdom. Right? He says it's already happened. You don't come into judgment when all else is shaken and comes into judgment. There are those things that will remain. That is the church of Jesus Christ, his bride, who are partaking of an unshakable kingdom. Because Jesus bore the judgment already. You don't come into judgment because Jesus already bore the judgment. Right? This is the cross. The meaning of the cross in history is that for those who will put their faith and trust in him, he bore the wrath of the coming day. Right? He was shaken spiritually, bearing our sin in his own body on the cross. He was shaken by God's wrath so that those who trust in him might be forgiven, will have no judgment, and will pass from death into life. That day, for those who's Trust is in Christ. The day that is coming for us has already happened. The only safe place to be on that day is at the foot of the cross 
with your arms clinging to the feet of Jesus in faith and trust. Jesus was shaken so we will remain unshaken and stand firm. In verse 22 and 24 that Thad was preaching out of last week, talking about the, the mountain that we're coming to. We're not counting coming to the mountain of judgment and law, but the coming to Mount Zion. In verses 22 to 24, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. If you don't know, Mount Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. It's the, it's the city of God. It is the capital of the eternal, unshakable kingdom, so to speak. And so he says, we have come not to Old Testament mountain of law and judgment. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in fest, festal gathering. So it's a celebration. Right, it's, a, it's the party, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. Right? This is verse 25. The innumerable angels in festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, who have taken their part in the kingdom. They've come to God, the judge of all, but they do not come under judgment. They come to the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect. They come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Through faith, we enter into this kingdom. And and the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is the capital of the eternal, unshakable kingdom. We read about it. Revelation ends with this picture. Revelation 21, verse 2, it, it ends with this picture. What do they see? I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem. Not like the old Jerusalem, it was shaken and destroyed. Right, 70 B.C., it was leveled to the ground. The temple was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. The people were expelled. Very shakable. And it's never been fully rebuilt in the same way, but he said, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, a new, unshakable capital of, a, of an eternal kingdom. is why as we looked at the hall of faith, one of the marks of the people of faith, that is Old Testament and New, for you and for me, one of the marks that sets us apart from the world is what we're looking for, what we're hoping in, where our desires lie, right? Then that shapes our lives. Are we living in light of that day, right? Or are we living for something else, absorbed, absorbed in the trinkets of the world and, and, and the priorities of the world and the stupid things that 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 so fill their life as if they're not going to be shaken and removed. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 10, it says about Abraham that he was looking to the city that has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. He was looking to that day when everything else is shaken and that city, God designed and built an unshakable city that you and I can enter into right now by faith in Christ. And he said he lived for that day. He was looking not in any, even in a sense, to the promised land. Right? It was even that is temporary. He says he was looking for that city that his foundations and builder is God. Which is why in chapter 11, verse 16, as it talks about the people of faith and unpacks this whole genealogy of the followers and the lovers of God, it says they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Right? That marks the people of faith. Does it mark us? Are we so building our kingdom, building our house, building our stuff, collecting and amassing our whatever it is we're doing? Are we so focused on that? Are we so building on that? Are we so absorbed in that? That we're not desiring the better country, living in light of the better country, living in light of that heavenly one that is coming. Therefore, for those people, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Because they live for him, and they live for that day, that unshakable day. They live for an eternity, and so their life now looks very different. The life of a Christian is described in the New Testament is very different and very counter-cultural. He's not ashamed to be called our God, because he has prepared for us a city. And for those who do not refuse to hear, right, who believe and who... Trust and live for that city and not this one. Are the people of faith. My friends, the only things in this life that are going to survive the shaking, the removal, the word of God, and the people of God. At least as I read the scripture, I can't figure out anything else that's going to make it. When the removal comes and the shaking comes, everything else we're investing in, there's I don't see anything else that's going to pass on. The Bible says the word of God stands forever, right? And the church, in many ways, the church is the new Jerusalem. Sometimes it's a picture even of the church, the new Jerusalem that comes down, the people of God, the church of God. We are grateful because we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the word of God and the people of God. The word of God stands forever, and those who will not refuse it will also stand forever. So in verses 24 and 25, it says we come to Jesus, to the mediator of a new covenant. Right, this is, we started in 25, but 24 leading into it, we come to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant and this the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word of a- than Abel. See to it that you don't refuse Him who is speaking. Put your trust and faith in this one who is speaking, who is proclaiming these things, who is telling and declaring beforehand the day is coming. But I'm offering you an unshakable kingdom through faith in Christ. We're not to put our hope in all the things that will be shaken and removed. Paul says at one time that we don't fix our eyes on the things that are uh, visible, but we fix our eyes on the things that are invisible. Because the visible things are passing and are temporal, but the invisible things are eternal. And this is the nature of faith, and it is true. We don't see that kingdom in the way. We, in some ways, we see it coming in our own lives, in our own hearts, and in the midst of his people. There is a foretaste of the coming of the kingdom and a foretaste of the fellowship with the king. But in many ways, this is an invisible kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is among you because I am among you and in you by my spirit. So we, this invisible kingdom, he said, should, should capture our attention and our focus. He says, we don't look to the visible thing. The problem is, my friends, we do a little too much. And we focus on the invisible things just a little too little. And this is, I think, the message for us as a church, particularly in these times. There is so much demanding 
Our attention is our culture tempts us in so many ways and in so many directions, and he calls us to this faithfulness. And really the point of it all is he's talking about a totally new perspective on our relationship to the world. The world is going to be shaken and pass. It'll be removed in its present form. There is a new heavens and a new earth and things will be remade and, and the new Jerusalem will be the new unshakable capital of the new kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. That's coming. But for now, this perspective of how do we relate to the world that you and I are in this world, but we're not of this world. Our hope is not in this world and not of any of the things in this world. We're a pilgrim people. We're on our way somewhere. Paul tries to capture this. Let me try to bring it out in, some, in different ways, in different places. But like if you read this text, in, in many ways it's, it's a hard text. But in this context, try to hear what Paul is saying. When in verse Corinthians chapter 7, starting in 29, he says, This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has come very, is drawn very short. The shaking is coming, right? The removal is coming. So from now on, God's people, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice in this world at this time as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of this world is passing, and your relationship to it is fundamentally different. Right, and some of those things, there's a lot of what I would say is hyperbole. There, there are things there like those who have wives as though they had none. Or those who have husbands as though you have none. What he is driving at here is you, is you put that in context of the other. Those who mourn as though they weren't mourning. And yes, we mourn. We're in the world. We experience its pain and its suffering. Those who mourn. But as if they're not mourning because this too shall pass. And in the morning there will be joy of an unshakable kingdom. In other words, it's temporary. Those who rejoice, as though they weren't rejoicing. In other words, don't over-rejoice in whatever it is you're rejoicing is. I got a promotion, or I got this thing, or got that, or did that, or whatever it is. He's like, you rejoice. But as those who are not rejoicing, because the real rejoicing is far deeper, greater, bigger, better, and this is not what... In other words, he's putting it in perspective, saying we're in the world, but we're not of it. And our ultimate hope and our ultimate goal and our ultimate destiny is so much bigger and better and different. And so our touch, he's saying, he's saying this, you hold the world loosely. You're in the world. All of these things are important and necessary. Spouses and the mourning and the rejoicing and, and dealing with the world and the world's goods. We can't live without them. I need a house. I need a car in our culture anyway. Right? There are things like we live in the world, these things, but what he is saying is these things are not the most important thing. And be careful of becoming too absorbed and attached to them. Hold them loosely. Think about them loosely. They're utilitarian. They get you through life. But this world is not your home. And these things are all passing in other words, don't idolize so those who have wives as though they have none or husbands as though you had none. What is he saying? Don't idolize your spouse. 
Don't idolize, I would just extrapolate that. Don't idolize your children or your family. They're important and God has given them to you and you do mourn and rejoice in the life of your family, but they're not, they're not God. <laughs> they're not the kingdom. They're, they're not the most important thing. They, there is that God, then your spouse. I'm not saying your spouse isn't important. In fact, they're their number one ministry in life after the Lord, but after the Lord. After his kingdom, there is that sense in which even as we are married, what is the purpose of our marriage but to seek and to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness first and to bring each other along on that pursuit, which is bigger than both of us. Keith Green ages me. In 1980, he came out with the song. I came to Christ in 83. So it was part of cutting my teeth on early Christian music. But he had a song that captured me at the time. And when I was writing this, it made me think of, he wrote a song called, I Pledge My Head to Heaven for the Gospel, right? Which is this idea that I pledge my head myself, that that is me. I pledge it to heaven for the gospel, right, over the world. But then his second and third verses are this. I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel, though our love Each passing day just seems to grow. As I told her when we wed, I would surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. I pledge my son, my daughter, to heaven for the gospel. Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned, I will teach him to to rejoice and to lift a thankful, praising voice and to be like him who bore the nails and the crown of thorns. I'm your child, and I want to be in your family, your kingdom forever. I'm your child, and I'm going to follow you no matter whatever the cost. I'm going to count all things lost. Your relationship to things of the world is fundamentally changed. We're in the world. And these are important things. We have a stewardship about them that is as much God-given. But they're never the ultimate things. They're never to capture us in a sense of idolatry. We're in the world. We enjoy what God has given. But nothing in the world is more important. That's why Paul says, deal with the world as though you had no dealings with it. Like you've got to deal with the world, but it's hold it loosely. For the present form of the world is passing. Every funeral, I remind God's people, this world is not our home. Every, almost every one, it is part of my message, is remember, remember. They've gone home. Right? And one day we'll join them. This world is not our home. Our hope is not here. We have suffered loss, but they have gained. They see him face to face. Right? They have stepped into that which we all say we hope for. This world is not our home. We invest so much in worldly stuff and we're busy about the world's priorities and ambitions to a degree. And and to some degree, we're in the world, but not to the neglect of the kingdom. Right? I had in here the guy who builds more barns, right? He's prospering in the world. This is the way it goes, right? We prosper in the world. We have have stuff and we like it. And what does he do? He says, I said to myself, self, you're going to build more barns. And then God says today, your soul is demanded of you. You fool. And this is how it is with those 
who are not rich toward God. Right? And so it's not just that, you know, those things aren't, we're in the world and we'll use them, but it's being rich toward God, right? It's seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness, knowing him, loving him, walking with him, serving him, you know, his church, which he is building against the gates of hell and which will be ushered in as, as, as the peopling of the unshakable kingdom forever. The only things in life that will survive, the word of God and the people of God. So he says, going back to verse 25, see that we don't refuse him who speaks. Right? And the the way it's said there is emphatic. You can say, see to it. Right? He doesn't just say, don't refuse him. He says, see to it that you do not refuse. See to it that you hear, that you listen that you obey, that you respond, see to it, he says. Make certain, do not fail. He said, as he goes on from there, that he warned his people on earth. He's looking at the Old Testament. They received the law at Mount Sinai. And they didn't listen. And they didn't enter the promised land. And they wandered in the wilderness and perished there. And he's giving them as a warning, saying, I I spoke to them from earth, from Mount Sinai. Sinai from the giving of the law, but now he says, I'm speaking to you from the heavenly Mount Zion. I'm speaking to you from the capital of the eternal kingdom through Christ the King who's now been enthroned in the gospel. And he says, I'm speaking to you. I am proclaiming to you the day is coming. Put your faith and trust in Christ and live for him and for that day. Chapter 1 of Hebrews, this is, way, this is the point in many ways of all of the book. Verse, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says this, that God spoke in many times in many ways. He spoke through the prophets, but he says in these last days, the days that you and I are in right now, in these last days, it says he has spoken to us through his Son. And see to it that you do not refuse to listen, to hear. To hear the call of the unshakable kingdom calling us out of the pettiness of so much that absorbs our souls, right? That we would live and seek first that kingdom and his righteousness. See to it that we do not refuse. See to it, make sure that you're listening, that you are hearing. This is chapter 2 of Hebrews, remember? This is, you know, pulling together the threads of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. He said this, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. I think that is a message for the church in every age, but brothers and sisters, we need to hear it. Pay, we need to pay more attention to what we've heard. We've heard it. We know it. But if we don't start paying more attention and waking up and, and taking it more seriously, he says, lest we drift away. How much drifting away is happening right now? How much deconstructing is happening right now? How much sifting is happening? Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Three times he says this. 3, 7 and 8. 3, 15, 4, 7. Three times he says, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing. Do not harden, respond, obey, listen, pay attention, much more attention. You and I are tempted. I'm tempted. Every day. We live in the world. And it's full of so many good things. And there is so much 
And it's so engrossing. And now with screens everywhere, like I can feel every moment. Like it is so engrossing. There's hardly a space or a quiet spot or a moment. We are tempted and he's calling us to hear. Put aside the cacophony one way or another. To hear. So that we don't conform anymore to the world, but to live in its priorities, but to wake up and to live the priorities of the unshakable kingdom. I'll make very quickly then the last two verses. Part of what it means to seek first the unshakable kingdom is to offer acceptable worship. Therefore, let us, verse 28, be grateful that we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and therefore, let us offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This acceptable worship and service is, is the whole service. I think it's the Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices unto God. He's talking about the whole of your life, not any particular thing, but all of it. And he's saying that we need to offer then to him our whole lives as an acceptable worship. And the only thing that makes our worship acceptable is that when it flows from a heart of gratitude, that you have received this unshakable kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only acceptable motive for the Christian life. And he says it right here, therefore let us be grateful that we're receiving this kingdom and thus and in this way that we're able to offer this acceptable worship. It's the worship of those, right, who are grateful because they've already passed from death unto life and entered this kingdom and belong to him and are living for this day without fear in the full hope of the Lord Jesus Right? And so that is the, the fundamental drive of everything we do. We're, we don't live in fear like the world should of that day. But we live in gratitude. Seeking first his kingdom. Because we have received an unshakable kingdom. Even as we will close and pray. Even as the book of Revelation ends. Chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. It says this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have indeed come to you this morning and to you, to Mount Zion, the unshakable kingdom. We have come in Christ to you. And Father, we confess, I confess, there are so many things that have stolen away my focus, that have stolen away the priority of your kingdom, the things that tempt us and the things that pull on us. Where we lose sight of Jesus, we have at the beginning of this same chapter heard that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus and to run this race. Help us to run as those who will achieve the crown of the unshakable kingdom that we are receiving. Let us be grateful. Teach us gratitude even as we seek to hear and obey. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.